When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Our production team is taking a short break for the next two weeks, so we wanted to take this chance to introduce you to one of our favorite podcasts, Curiosity Daily. The hosts, Cody Goff and Ashley Hamer, put together a collection of some of their favorite stories. Here are Cody and Ashley. Hi, we're the hosts of the Curiosity Daily podcast from Curiosity.com. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, we want to share some of our favorite stories that have led us to change our habits to make life better. We share all sorts of scientific research our listeners can use in their own lives. And, well, sometimes it's just so good that it rubs off on us. So you're about to learn how to get a better night's sleep, how to better manage your time and money, and even how to get over a breakup. Plus a few other surprises we think you'll like. So let's talk life hacks. We're going to take you through an imaginary day, from waking up in the morning to falling asleep at bedtime. And what better place to start than the first thing you probably have to deal with in the morning? Your alarm clock. Here's a pro tip for your next wake-up call. Whatever you do, do not hit the snooze button. Science suggests it'll only make things worse, even if it feels so good. One academic who agrees with this is Mary Karskadden, a professor of psychiatry and human behavior at Brown University. She says that hitting the snooze button causes what's known as drockling. That's the phenomenon of drifting in and out of sleep in the early morning. Drockling feels great, and there's a reason for this. Your body temperature naturally warms up a couple hours before your body is ready to wake up. If your alarm clock wakes you up before you're ready, your body temperature is at its lowest, and braving your cold bedroom can be hard. But going back to sleep will make your morning a lot harder. Waking up at different times each morning disrupts your internal alarm, which makes it harder for your body to know when to start getting sleepy. You're also giving yourself sleep inertia, which is that groggy feeling you get after you abruptly wake up from a deep sleep cycle. The problem is that when you drift back off after hitting snooze, your body may enter a deeper sleep stage than it was in before, which would make the groggy feeling even worse. The result is that even if it might feel like you're getting more rest, you're actually making yourself more tired. So what's the alternative? Research shows that you should set your alarm for the same time every day. Eventually, you will retrain your body clock to get sleepy at the right time and feel awake when it's time to start your morning. Don't worry, coffee is always an option. And since recording this story, I literally don't hit my snooze button anymore. Yeah, I don't either. That moment where you decide to wake up is not fun, but every moment afterward is so much better than if you had gone back to sleep. Seriously, no, every morning is so much better for me now. I'm so glad I made the change. Okay, so you woke up and you didn't hit snooze and you want to squeeze in a morning workout. 
but you're so tired. What do you do? Well, here's a story on how to handle your morning. If you went to bed late and your alarm goes off to go to a gym class, then which is worse, skipping your workout or losing an hour of sleep? There are pros and cons to both, so let's get into what scientific research has shown. I know what I would do, sleep. And I would probably work out. (laughs) (laughs) But I think there are times when both of those are the right answer. Sure, can't wait to find out. So first, let's talk about the pros and cons of sleeping in. One perk is that you'll have a better workout next time. That's based on a 2013 study that found that people who slept longer each night ended up having longer, higher quality workouts. But a different 2013 study found a pretty major drawback. It found that skipping 30 minutes of sleep in favor of 30 minutes of moderate to heavy physical activity can lead to improvements in cardiovascular health. But there are pros and cons to dragging yourself out of bed when you're short on sleep, too. One perk is that you'll sleep better the following night. Studies show that even a little bit of exercise can have a big impact on sleep quality, especially if you're dealing with insomnia or sleep apnea. Waking up and working out can also be good for your mental health. After all, exercise has been shown to reduce depression and anxiety and just boost your mood overall. But there are a couple drawbacks to cutting sleep to work out. First and foremost is that your workout could suffer. It's not just your brain that has circadian rhythms. Research from 2016 says it's your muscles too. Muscle cells work better during their biological daytime than their biological night. So if you wake up when your muscles think you should be sleeping, they won't serve you quite as well. Studies have also shown that you might be hungrier if you're short on sleep, and that can make it harder to stick to your diet. The takeaway from all this research is that the best thing to do depends on your history. If you tend to skip more workouts than shut eye, then forcing yourself to get up for a run before work might do you good. If you exercise regularly but don't get enough sleep, allow yourself to hit the snooze button and maybe find another exercise time that works better for you. I should mention that Ashley is a Boston Marathon runner who's done, like, what, 11 marathons now? So we have something of a resident expert on fitness. You like to inject a little bit of uh, fitness expertise into our episodes, which is really nice to have on the show. Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of myths about fitness are the things that are keeping people from getting to the gym and going running. So I like to bust those myths when I can. Yeah, even I am exercising these days. Really? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Took a while, but we finally got there. (laughs) Okay, so you've exercised or you've slept in, but now you're on your way to work. Maybe you take a bus or a train, or maybe you stop by your favorite coffee shop to get caffeinated for your big day. Well, here's some surprising research into how you could actually make your morning a little bit more pleasant. According to a recent study, loneliness is on the rise in the U.S., But when's the last time you struck up a conversation with a stranger? If you don't think that sounds fun, then you might want to think again, because a new study says you might be happier if you talk to strangers. Do you ever talk to strangers, Ashley? Not as much as I bet you do. (laughs) You seem like someone who strikes up conversations with strangers. Do you take rideshare pools? Oh, I do. I try to talk during those ones, but not everybody wants to talk. I always try to talk. And you can usually tell within a couple seconds if the person wants to talk or not. Yeah. Well, in a new paper, University of Chicago researchers studied people commuting into Chicago on the train, which is a place where you're really surrounded by a lot of people you don't really know. The commuters were asked to either strike up a conversation with a stranger or actively avoid contact with other people or do whatever happened naturally. Afterward, the commuters mailed the researchers a questionnaire evaluating their experience. The researchers compared their responses with responses from a second group of commuters, They were asked to imagine striking up a conversation with a stranger, avoiding other people, or commuting normally. It turned out that the commuters who chatted with strangers in real life had the most pleasurable commutes. But get this, 
When commuters imagined the experience, they pictured it as uncomfortable and rated it as the worst of the three commute approaches. The researchers say this result means we have a severe misunderstanding of the psychological consequences of social engagement, and they suggest that we choose solitude on our commutes out of a fear of rejection. But based on all the data the researchers gathered, people were happier actually talking to strangers almost every time they did it. That's a lot more than the 50-50 chance some participants thought they would have in successfully making a connection. So if you're feeling lonely, then try striking up a conversation with your next cab or rideshare driver, grocery store clerk, or person in line next to you at your favorite coffee shop. And let us know how it goes. I'm really trying to talk to more strangers myself. My boyfriend is a renowned stranger talker. (laughs) And he tries to make every cashier he sees laugh. And he's usually pretty successful. That's a cool goal. A very nice, specific goal. One of my first jobs as an adult was working at Starbucks, and my coworker Jared asked every single person that came in, how's your day going today? Every single one. And no one was ever annoyed or didn't want to talk. Yeah, people like talking about themselves. Okay, so congratulations. You've made it past your morning commute. Now you're at work. It's time for you to look at your to-do list for the day, and oh boy, you've got a lot on your plate. So where do you start? Ready to become more productive? Well, we've got a tip today that comes from Mark Twain supposedly. We made a video about this on Facebook earlier this year, but it's worth repeating on our podcast, and it's called The Frog Rule. I try to always use this. When I fail, it's obvious, and when I succeed, it's like the best day ever. If you don't know what this rule is, supposedly Mark Twain once said something along the lines of, eat a live frog first thing in the morning and nothing worse will happen to you for the rest of the day. There's actually no definitive evidence that Mark Twain spoke or wrote the phrase, There's even an alternate version that goes a little like this, and this might help make this tip make more sense. Quote, if it's your job to eat a frog, it's best to do it first thing in the morning. And if it's your job to eat two frogs, it's best to eat the biggest one first, unquote. In more practical terms, the frog is your worst, least enjoyable task of the day. That thing you're dreading. But a lot of the time, it's also the most important thing for you to do that day. At least a couple authors have written about the benefits of doing this. Self-development author and public speaker Brian Tracy wrote that, quote, successful, effective people are those who launch directly into their major tasks and then discipline themselves to work steadily and single-mindedly until those tasks are complete, unquote. And retired U.S. Navy Admiral William McRaven says that he makes his bed every morning so that he has a sense of accomplishment at the start of his day, not to mention some pride in sticking to a good habit of self-discipline. Try it at work this week and see how it affects the rest of your work day. That is where I find it is really, really helpful. Definitely. Sending those dreaded emails, making that phone call you just don't want to deal with. Get out of the way before noon and the rest of your day will just go so smoothly. Totally. So let's say you're a big fan of the frog rule. You want to get that worst thing right out of the way. Let's say you've got like three really annoying tasks that are all equally obnoxious. Can't you do them all at once? Can't you just multitask and get all three out of the way? Not really. And here's why. Research says your brain is not wired for multitasking, but we all love saving time. So today we'll tell you what to do instead of multitasking to spend your time more efficiently. I think I had multitasker as a bullet point on my resume for like 10 years. Really? Yeah. Did you remove it after you got a job here? (laughs) (laughs) Well, believe it or not, I haven't updated my resume lately, Uh, but next time I do, I may remove it for this reason. Yeah. The thing about multitasking is that you're never actually doing two tasks at the same time. You're just switching from one to the other and back again. 
That switching eats up more time than you probably realize. In a 2007 study, people who were interrupted by an email or an instant message during a computer task were 20 to 25 minutes behind by the time they resumed the first task, even though the interruption only took 10 minutes. A third of those people took more than two hours to get back on task. So do the opposite of multitasking and instead batch your tasks. The idea is that you split up your tasks by category, things like emails, writing, and idea generation. Then do all of each type in one chunk of time. That chunk can be one four-hour session on Mondays or a 30-minute session every morning and evening, whatever the task calls for. Mark it in your calendar and treat it like an appointment. Now, this works great for things like responding to emails or scheduling tweets, but it doesn't always work with creative tasks like writing and designing. A 2017 study out of Columbia Business School found that when people regularly switched between tasks, they performed better on a test of creative thinking than people who worked on one task the whole time, and even those who switched when they felt like it. So at the end of the day, a little bit of both might be best. Batch those pesky tasks that eat up your time and save your switching around for the creative stuff. Did you like how I was writing emails the whole time you read that? <laughs> I loved that. <laughs> that was very good, Cody. I was listening, I promise. On topic. <laughs> Learning about how long it takes to get back on track really made me look at meetings differently. I mean, a 30-minute meeting isn't just taking up that exact 30 minutes. It could impact more than two hours of productivity because it's taking you out of whatever deep work you're doing and then making you readjust and realign later. Right. And that's also the same reason why I try to close all of my social media tabs when I'm working on something serious, because there's such a temptation to just, oh, let me just see what's on Twitter. And then by then I'm just, I'm gone. I've got to do that and flip my phone over. Because if I get a notification, it's like there goes 20 minutes of time, even if it only takes a couple seconds to answer. Right. So now you're at work and you're going about your day and you get some bad news and it's your job to tell everyone else about it. Oh, no, you didn't know you'd have to eat this frog or you would have done it first thing in the morning. Well, it turns out there's something you can do to make this task a little less tough. Cody, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. What? Well, which one do you want first? The good news? Okay. The good news is the phrase I just said makes bad news easier to handle. Okay. What's the bad news? Well, the bad news is that I don't actually have any bad news, so I can only demonstrate half of this concept. Ah, Well, that's not too bad then. Yeah, it's all good news. So research actually does show that when you've got both positive and negative information for someone, it's better to use that time-tested phrase, I've got good news and I've got bad news, than it is to deliver it all at once. This was confirmed in a 1985 experiment performed by economist Richard Thaler. Cornell University students were asked to decide which character they felt was more upset in two comparative scenarios. In both scenarios, the character's car is damaged in a parking lot. In the first scenario, the character spends $200 to repair the damage, but on the same day wins $25 in the office football pool. In the second scenario, the character spends $175 to repair the damage. Even though both characters lost the same amount of money, most of the students thought the second character was more upset. This is explained by a theory that says that people don't weigh alternatives equally, but make decisions based on their fear of loss. Because the first character had a gain with his loss, students perceived his situation as better. In 2008, researchers looked further into this phenomenon and determined that the smaller the positive amount and the larger the negative amount, the more people preferred that the information be presented separately rather than summed together. This idea has implications in a lot of different areas. 
For example, a 2016 study found that media audiences are happier when a story about a negative event highlights something positive that came out of it. That's a good lesson for news outlets who want to balance the important job of reporting negative news while keeping their readers happy. There are implications for investing in sales, too. For example, in finance, investors wouldn't mind seeing a mutual fund post a quarterly loss if it was also pointed out that portions of the portfolio had posted a gain. In a retail example, a car priced at $20,000 with a $500 rebate is perceived as better than the same car priced at $19,500 without a rebate. It's just like Mary Poppins' sage advice. A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. Okay, but what if you're the one getting the bad news? As in, what if you just got dumped by your significant other? Oh, in the middle of the day. Oh, the worst. That'll really mess with your productivity. (laughs) We'll be back with more Clear and Vivid right after this short break. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Welcome back to Clear and Vivid. Let's step outside of the workplace for a second and talk about romantic relationships. People have a lot of different ways of dealing with breakups. And fortunately, that means scientists have looked into the methods that work the best. All right, Ashley, what do you do to get over a breakup? Sharon Van Etten is a big one. Actually, I have a special breakup playlist. Yeah? Yeah, it's... A lot of good music. I listen to a lot of sad music. That's a big thing for me. Oh, I'm a Linkin Park guy. Oh, yeah. 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 We've just talked about this. Popping in the end. Mm-hmm. Some of their newer albums, man, they will just boom. Nice. Well, new research may have found the best way to get over a breakup. A new study published in the Journal of Experimental Psychology General looked at 24 young adults and had them try a few different coping strategies. The first was negative reappraisal of the ex-partner. That's like when you focus on your ex's annoying habits, the things you don't like about them. A lot of people do this automatically. I mean, who hasn't gone out to the bar with their buddies and just been like, oh man, I hate it when she did this or he did this or whatever. Yep. The second strategy was reappraisal of love feelings. 
And that's when participants accepted their unrequited love in a non-judgmental way. So they would read statements like, it's okay to love someone I'm no longer with. Think motivational quotes. And the third strategy was distraction. And that's like when all your friends tell you to stay busy after a breakup to keep your mind off your ex. In this case, the participants were told to think positive thoughts about things that had nothing to do with their ex, like favorite foods or, I don't know, Star Wars, if you're into that. So what worked best? Well, all three options actually helped them decrease the emotional responses to photos of their exes. And that's pretty important because there's photos of your exes everywhere if you're on any social media site. But there were differences in feelings of love towards the ex and in overall happiness. That first option, negative reappraisal, decreased feelings for the ex, but it also decreased overall happiness. The second option, love reappraisal, resulted in no change of feelings for the ex or in overall happiness. And the final option, distraction, also left feelings for the ex unchanged, but it did make participants feel more pleasant. So your best bet is probably a mix of all three. But hey, if you're a super happy person, then maybe go with the negative one and you'll zero out. When I went through my last very big breakup, I did the distraction thing the whole way. Like I just started getting tons and tons of music gigs and just working all the time. But then, you know, my music career took off. So that was good. Hey, turn a negative into a positive. Absolutely. I'm married, and Ashley's in a long-term relationship, so fortunately, neither of us have had to deal with a breakup recently. But the worst ones still sting like they were yesterday. They're no fun, and one way that I know that both of us have dealt in the past with breakups is retail therapy. I mean, yeah, you go to the store, you buy all the clothes that you know that they wouldn't have liked, that you love. Oh, yeah, it's great. Or that video game I've been wanting to play, but I've been spending too much time with her. Well, now I got a lot of time on my hands. Silver lining. And yeah, retail therapy can feel good when you're dealing with extra stress, but the rest of the time, you should probably keep track of the way you spend your money. And if you've ever found budgeting to be a difficult thing to do, scientific research may provide some guidelines to help you keep track of how you are spending your money. You know setting a budget is a good idea, but let's face it, it can be hard to actually make, let alone follow one. Fortunately, Duke University researchers have figured out an easy way to cut down on your spending. And it doesn't even require a calculator. You just have to avoid certain situations. At Duke's Common Sense Lab, that's senses and C-E-N-T-S, experts dig into human behavior and psychology to figure out the best ways to help people save money, get out of debt, and boost their earnings. In their 2017 annual report, they announced a few fascinating findings from their research. One of those findings? There are a lot of things people regret spending money on. For one study, researchers presented millennials with their 40 most recent purchases and asked them to rate how happy they were with the decision to spend that money. The participants gave pretty high ratings to expenses related to community, healthcare, rent and utilities, arts and entertainment, and education. The lowest ratings came from purchases made at convenience stores, bars, restaurants, and digital subscriptions. Other than the digital subscriptions, these lamentable expenses all have one thing in common. Food. Here's where the solution comes in. The researchers then surveyed more than 1,300 people and asked them to rate some options for how to curb their food spending. Here are the five options. Think about which one of these you think you could stick to the most easily. Ready? One, only spend a maximum of $20 each time you eat out. Two, only spend $40 per week eating out. Three, never eat out. Four, only eat out two times per week. Five, only eat out on the weekends. So which do you think you could stick to the best? Well, the first couple options that set a spending limit are the most traditional. 
They're the rules you might use if you follow a budget. But it was the last two options, the rules of thumb, like only eat out two times per week or only eat out on the weekends, that got the best response. People were the most confident that they could follow those rules and believed the rules would save them the most money. The lesson is clear. If you want to save money, try limiting spendy activities instead of limiting the amount you spend. Figure out how many times you'll eat out, not how much you'll spend, and you'll be on the road to more satisfying spending. You can also build in the math to this. If you know that every time you go to your favorite restaurant, you and your partner or your friend end up spending about 50 bucks and you want to say, well, I don't want to spend more than 100 bucks a week on going out, then 50 times two is 100. So just say you're not going to go there more than twice a week and then you don't have to calculate the exact price and tax on everything you're buying with your bill. Absolutely. Okay, so now you've made it through your grueling workday, gotten over your latest breakup and figured out how to control your spending. The workday's over, and now it's time for the million-dollar question. What do you actually spend your extra time and money on? You will definitely want to stay tuned for this story. You know what I've noticed about recording with you? What? I feel like I can stop you and give you a direction, and you'll take it right away. And I feel extra comfortable doing that because you're a musician. Oh, yeah, that's a really good point. Have I ever told you that? No. Yeah, that's a thing. Because I was a musician— and I know what it's like to be stopped in the middle of something, which is super frustrating. Sure. Right? You're in the middle of rehearsal and your band director just cuts you off when you're in the middle of that lick you really want to play or you're about to get to that really cool solo or solely. Right. And I know it's annoying, but like that's what you got to do as a musician. Yeah, you just get used to it. Yeah. I mentioned this because new research suggests that doing stuff that has nothing to do with your job can improve your job performance. Ah. In a recent study, 36 first-year medical students at the University of Pennsylvania were randomly split into two groups— One group was given custom art training lessons at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. They learned a mix of things like how to identify colors and shapes, ask creative questions, and support their claims about a given work of art. The other group got a free museum membership, but no specific training. Afterward, both groups of medical students were tested on how well they could describe not only various works of art, but also retinal scans and photos of people with various eye diseases. The group that had the art training showed a lot of improvement in their observational and descriptive skills, and they were better than the other group at describing every type of image, including the medical ones. This means that looking carefully at art isn't just an artsy skill. It can also help you analyze retinal scans. Now, this study might seem pretty specific to eye care, but in another article from the same issue of the journal where this study was published, David Epstein and Malcolm Gladwell say there are broader implications— They call the power of hobbies the Temin effect, named after biologist and Nobel laureate Howard Temin. Temin was a scientist who enjoyed reading about philosophy and literature, and Epstein and Gladwell argued that this helped Temin think outside the box and do better work. They also argued that Nobel Prize-winning scientists at large have more hobbies than the average person or even your typical scientist. Here's some more research to back that up. A recent study by the HR platform Namely found that high-performing employees take the most vacation time. I'll say that again. High-performing employees take the most vacation time. So stop focusing on working longer hours just to impress your boss and get out of the office once in a while. If you're listening and you're a manager, by the way, then think about approving your employees' next vacation requests. You might get a better worker when they get back. Yeah, I noticed that when you come back from vacations, you're like, ready to go. You have all these like new ideas. It's great. Wait, have you noticed that? Yeah. Yeah. You were just out for the weekend and you came back like 
super enthusiastic about your job. It was great. I did feel pretty on fire after Gen Con. Yeah. So cool. Wow. <laughs> I did not know that that showed. That's cool. Ashley, I'm jealous of how much you enjoy the Temin effect because not only do you do this full time, not only are you also a accomplished marathon runner, but you also are a professional musician. From where I'm standing, I feel like I could stand to do a few fewer activities, but <laughs> I mean, it is fun and it does help in all areas of my life for sure. Yeah, I mean, I may not participate in that many regular activities, but I'm pretty much obsessed with vacations. Travel is the best. And I know I just mentioned that you're a runner, Ashley. If you're listening and you're looking for a new hobby and you're worried that running will mess up your body, then you might be interested in this myth that we busted on our show that might motivate you to get out there, run around your neighborhood or on your nearest treadmill. You've probably heard that running is bad for your knees, but a growing body of research suggests that running might not only be fine for your knees, it might actually improve your knee health. Do you think you have healthy knees then? I have super healthy knees. <laughs> this is my biggest pet peeve. My response to this is always to change the subject so people never know how I actually feel. But whenever someone tells me, oh, I used to run, but then it was just terrible for my knees. So I stopped. I, I want to. You just can't. I can't handle it. I can't handle it. Well, why don't you educate them? I'm a very well actually kind of person. And I try to stop from doing that in social situations because people don't really appreciate it. That's tricky to yeah. be a science educator, but then also want to have friends. <laughs> that's the trick. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> that's fair. Thank goodness we've got this podcast for an outlet. Oh, really? It's It helps a lot. Well, for a study published in 2016 in the European Journal of Applied Physiology, researchers had male and female runners either run on a treadmill for 30 minutes or spend the same amount of time sitting quietly. Each participant then did the opposite activity the next day. Before and after each session, the researchers drew blood from an arm and synovial fluid from a knee. That's the substance that lubricates your joints. Then they analyzed it from a bunch of angles, like looking at cells associated with knee inflammation and a substance called cartilage oligomeric matrix protein, or COMP, which is often used as a marker of arthritis. And the results were pretty dramatic. After running, the participants' knees had lower levels of cells linked to inflammation, and the COMP levels in their knees had also dropped. The study's author concluded that moderate runs are, quote, not likely to harm healthy knees and probably offer protection, unquote. And this is just recent research. As far back as the 1980s, studies were showing that running wasn't associated with knee arthritis or other types of degenerative joint disease. But hang on, your knees hurt when you run, right? Especially if you're a new runner. Well, that pain rarely comes from a breakdown of your joints. A lot of the time, it's because you're running too much mileage too soon, or even just the fact that you're using old shoes. Of course, if you've got a nagging pain that doesn't go away, then please see a doctor. This podcast is not intended to be medical advice. But at the same time, don't let the fear of knee damage scare you away from running. It might actually keep your knees healthy. There are links to supplementary exercises you can do to help stop knee pain in our write-up today on Curiosity.com and on the Curiosity app for Android and iOS. That's something we haven't mentioned about Curiosity. We're not just a podcast. On Curiosity.com, we write about all sorts of stuff. We also have a free app for Android and iOS. Yeah, and we always include links to full articles in our podcast show notes, which you can pull up on your favorite podcast app like Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. So that way you've got resources to learn more, and they're always just a couple clicks on your computer or a couple taps on your phone away. Speaking of your phone, we want to wrap up with a tip for how you can manage the way you use your phone. 
And this is a tip that has seriously changed my life. Today, Curiosity wrote about a new study, and we've got some really bad news if you're addicted to your phone. Oh, no. Participants in this study who kept their smartphones out of the bedroom for one week showed a marked improvement in their happiness and overall quality of life. Wow. I'm not done. They also showed fewer signs of smartphone addiction. Plus, many of the participants reported that they slept better, experienced less anxiety, and improved their relationships. More than 90% of the participants who did this said they might keep it up. I can't imagine being a person that would say they would keep it up because I can't imagine being a person that would even do that. Okay, so I do have a suggestion for breaking the habit. Okay. And I learned in college that when you change a habit, you have to replace it with something, right? So you can't just stop doing a thing without replacing it with something. Sure. Obviously, you can swap out your phone for a book. It turns out that when you sleep after you learn something new, you're able to remember it better later anyway. So if you're reading a nonfiction book or a philosophy book, then your brain's going to process that more, which is really cool. Here's another life hack on a more personal level. My wife realizes that I'm really into gadgets. So like I like my Nintendo Switch and I like my gaming PCs and I just like techie stuff. So she got me an e-reader. She got me a Kindle. Now I've got a gadget I can bring to bed. Oh. Right. But at the same time, I'm also reading a book. So it's kind of like cheating. So if you at home are sleeping with someone who is tech obsessed like me, then get them an e-reader and it'll even let you read in the dark depending on the model, like if it's got a backlight. Just don't use a tablet. Anything that emits blue light will actually disturb your sleep. Right. Well, there's a couple suggestions. Do you have an e-reader? I don't. You know, I've been wanting to read more books and I use my phone too much. It seems like a simple fix. (laughs) I'll do it. I'm saying it right now on the podcast. I'm going to leave my phone out of my room when I sleep for the next week. All right. We'll check back in a week or two. All right. Yeah. So we recorded that segment in May of 2018 and I have not slept with my phone in my bedroom since. And it has been such a game changer. I go to sleep immediately. I don't have trouble falling asleep. I don't stay awake thinking about all sorts of different thoughts buzzing around my head. I just fall asleep. It's great. That's so cool. I cannot believe that episode was about 400 episodes ago. Yes. Seriously. There are more than 400 episodes of Curiosity Daily, and they're all 10 minutes or less, and pretty much every story we record is timeless. So you can go back through our archives, search past episodes on curiositydaily.com, and look for whatever you're interested in. And we cover more than just life hacks. We'll help you learn about everything from the latest NASA research to new insights into genetics, linguistics, even quantum physics. We've also talked to some amazing guests like actor LeVar Burton and theoretical physicist Michio Kaku. So listen and learn along with us every day. Just visit curiositydaily.com or you can find us on your favorite podcast app or smart speaker. You can also add us to your daily flash briefing on the Amazon Alexa Skills Marketplace. We have a perfect five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. And remember, our episodes are less than 10 minutes long. So, I mean, really, what have you got to lose? We really hope that we'll be able to talk to you soon. And for Curiosity Daily, I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Stay curious. Cody and Ashley will be back next time with another collection of fascinating facts from science for a more interesting and better life. And then on November 26th, I'll be back with a new season of Clear and Vivid. We're kicking off season six with a very special conversation with Julie Andrews and her daughter, Emma Walton Hamilton, about their new book that they wrote together. Bye-bye.
In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.